you have that ambition, you have to accept the fact that you have to appeal to people that are maybe not the same as you, that think differently, that you know have uh, some cultural elements around them that may not be something that you're compatible with. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Today's episode is with Philip Piper. Philip is CEO and founder of Swarm Fund, a blockchain for private equity and the first live security token. Philip is a serial tech entrepreneur, former manager at Deutsche Bank and Alliance Group, former CEO of Proximic, a global data provider for digital media buyers, and he also went to my alma mater, UC Berkeley, Go Bears. Go Bears. Philip, I must say, <laughs> I must say I'm like super excited to have you on the podcast and it's not just because you went to Berkeley, although that probably adds like 50% of my excitement. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. Knowing that you went to Berkeley. Exactly. So, how are you today? It's good to have you after fighting back and forth to the email swarm and having you go to and fro for various trips. Yeah, it's been insane. So, it's sort of through the, through the question, how am I today? I'm, I'm actually great, although I'm totally exhausted in many different ways. But like, uh, I was on the road for the past two and a half weeks and just came back from Puerto Rico, which was like the, the end tail of uh, extensive travel through different parts of the world. And like I had read about all the excitement that goes on in Puerto Rico and, you know, touching down there and physically being in that location for the first time in my life. But just be seeing what how beautiful it is, but also what hardship it still has. And at the same time, what community is gravitating there. And it's not just crypto, but other parts of the communities as well. And some of which actually have grand plans to help out there. It's it's amazing to see. And so, like, we're planning to be part of that in some ways. We have, you know, we, we just launched a Puerto Rico reparation fund, for example, on the platform that is going to help local projects go live. Actually, the first one is going to be a, a big building in the heart of old San Juan that we're going to, you know, that the syndicate manager that is managing is going to turn into like a community building. It's like a five-story building, a community building with, you know, crypto workspaces, but also other offices as well as, you know, living spaces up top. And that's part of rebuilding. And then there's all sorts of other things going on actually outside of the town of San Juan that we can help actually sort of gain or put on a more than local level and therefore hopefully help in a private manner that in a way that the government may or may not be able to do. Yeah, it's a multifold attack for a, a complex problem and hopefully through everyone's efforts it'll it'll be solved. Yeah. At least a little bit. Yeah. I was actually just in Puerto Rico too. I didn't realize you were there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess everyone was there. Pretty interesting. Yeah, it was really good. But also just aside from that is like, you know, I find it a super exciting part of the journey in crypto. I think I think everyone went through the craziness of last year and just saw everything go go the way it did. But then sort of, you know, with, with the year ending, I think it had given like everyone who wasn't an insider uh, or broad swaths of people that weren't insiders the reason to look at this seriously. And this is from governments to the broader public to, you know, financial institutional investors who suddenly say this is something we can no longer ignore. So in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't have imagined to have conversations that we're having today that started in Q1 and, and extended to Q2 uh, with people that are dead serious about this. And you don't have to convince them of the reason why blockchain should exist, nor why it's relevant for them to listen to. But even more so, like, 
even specific to us. They come with ideas and you don't have to spend most of the conversation in trying to tell them what it is or educate them on blockchain. That's truly exciting because it points to a lot of potentials for adoption. Yeah, at the point that it's getting talked about at G20, you know, it's an issue that's on everyone's mind, which is crazy. So, I remember yeah. back in the days when I got into Bitcoin when Dogecoin first came out. I don't know if you remember, like, I think, what was it, 2014 or something? Yeah. And I bought Dogecoin when it first came out and got in the community way back early. And seeing it now is, is like so bizarre that it's getting talked about at G20 that politicians and everyone like it's, it's on the forefront of everyone's minds, which is really cool to see. Yeah, totally, totally. And it comes with challenges, right? I mean, it's like, it's not, not everyone's comfortable with that. Like it's, I think some part of the community was, you know, very, very comfortable being in this exotic state and, you know, being sort of on the, the libertarian outcasts of some kind. And now we're starting to cross some chasms in some areas. And that brings a whole new challenge because the community is extending. It's not, it's not changing or, or doing something different, but it's sort of, how do you embrace that new community that is coming in? And how do you make that, you know, part of it in some ways and without alienating the others? You know, it's an interesting process that actually has sort of seen that happen at Burning Man, where it's sort of, you know, it's the same same kind of process where it's, you know, the, the early ones that get disenfranchised by some newer parts that get excited about it. And how do you react to it? How do you open the arms and still say that this is a new community and we're all here to shape it? The early adopters get pushed out by the the newcomers you think sometimes well some, some do and that's like a natural reaction that that happens but that's the wonders of like this community that hopefully we're a little more open-minded and a little more embracing and maybe even goals oriented that we that we want to make something happen our grand scheme and i think generally people came into this community by wanting to do grand schemes and not just do it on a you know self-serving small small platform so if you have that ambition, you have to accept the fact that you have to appeal to people that are maybe not the same as you, that think differently, that you know have uh, some cultural elements around them that may not be something that you're compatible with. So you know it's it's a question: how can you deal with that, and how can you still be your own in that context? Right. It's definitely a challenge, but it's and it's an interesting one that it'll be interesting to see the future of all these things. Speaking of Burning Man, why? Are so many people in crypto also burners? I, I was there at the conference and I was amazed by the large number of Burning Man t- uh, burners uh, that were involved in the crypto community. I don't know if you noticed the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you could say which was first, right? I mean, it's, it's clear that sort of the the Burning Man nucleus was first, but is is it is it that you're you're in crypto and therefore get drawn to you know a setup that is clearly a utopian setup, which Burning Man is, right? It's like the you're, you're playing a future that like is evolving around, you know, principles that have been formulated. It's a charming and actually functioning way to look at future and, and play that through and see how that society evolves. I mean, is that so different from actually trying to come up with revolutionary concepts that are blockchain based or even digital currency based, right? I think that Venn diagram of vision actually sort of is very high. So I'm not surprised that that is a high degree of overlap. In fact, even the fundamental structures of, of cryptocurrency and Burning Man are both decentralized systems based yep. on like underlying principles. So even their fundamental like organization is meant to be like this flat thing where no one is in charge and people are just kind of working together based on a set of rules right. that everyone agrees upon. So their marriage kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, totally. Not a surprise to me. So I want to know a little more about you. Before you were Philip Piper, CEO and founder of 
Swarm Fund. Who were you and how did you get there? Tell me about your background. Okay, so not to start too early, but sort of in my in my former life, and I'm saying that very consciously, my former earlier life, I was at Sony at first, but then founded my first company. But, you know, the relevant parts then start later where I was actually at Deutsche Bank and I was doing private equity. And I then got hired into Allianz Group, which is one of the biggest financial institutions globally. And I was doing portfolio management for Asia and Eastern Europe. And I was good at it, but... To be honest, I was a little bored by the sort of the financial services that were, or the industry that was representing financial services. I was never really standing like behind the mode of operation and never identifying with the the real product. And so I then founded, you know, out of that, I founded a company together with an, another uh, genius guy who built one of the most successful chess computers globally. And we developed a new search algorithm that actually then became the nucleus of, you know, a very thriving data services company where we were servicing the biggest agencies and advertisers globally and helping them make decisions where to spend their money, you know, in real time. So we built that in seven years time. I was CEO for the seven years and we then later sold that to Comscore. And sort of, you know, I came to the point in my life, which when you put so much energy into one project like that, and you sort of successfully come from conceptual parts to that execution, you then wonder after that, like, what is it you're doing and what are you identifying with? And every entrepreneur has this after after that. It's like you start to rethink how you look at your life and what you're trying to achieve. So I took a step back and said, well, is my life going to be always revolving around making advertising a little bit better and just selling people a little bit more? or helping others sell a little bit more. And that wasn't a satisfying question to answer, right? Right. It's sort of this trivial thing in the grand scheme of life. Right. I mean, it was always mind-boggling to me how much talent and, and human capacity was thrown at that one small, that problem, which has a lot of dollars associated with it. But like if I if I would really just put together all that talent, what, I would wonder what, what they could achieve because there's so much brain power that has gone into that problem. But my personal story then is I, I opened myself up where it's, you know, I started to go to Burning Man. I started to mentor for Singularity University to really help solve some of the, you know, grand problems of the globals on the global scheme. Uh, started to do some personal investing and, you know, open myself up for other topics, which I knew that I would best learn about by helping them through the entrepreneurial process, but learning the topics by being hands-on and, you know, contributing directly. And so... In that context, funny enough, I was doing a couple of, you know, leverage buyouts. And in that context, I, I was heavily engaged with uh, BitTorrent. And I was hanging out with the founder of BitTorrent, uh, Bram Cohen. And, you know, he was working. I was asking him the standard due diligence question, like, what are, you, what are you working on? What are you spending your time with? And, you know, he was saying, well, I'm working on a space staked mining model for Bitcoin. And at that time, I was like, you have to stop right here because you have to you have to explain every single word in that sentence to me because I don't understand <laughs> what it actually means. And so that was my first touch point with it. I then sort of, you know, started to become excited about some of the prospects there and, you know, did some investing also in digital assets, but um, then randomly moved within Palo Alto uh, next door to this infamous house called the Love Nest, which, um, which was then actually a blockchain accelerator. And all I had to do is actually show up next door for coffee and hang out at that community house and you know see some of some of the community sort of move through that house and you know, started to develop an idea what what the community looked like and started to you know do a little bit of investing in one or the other projects and 
And then from there, I actually started to trade myself uh, some of the assets. And uh, being so coming from the financial world, it became evident to me that in order for the market to somewhat grow up, you cannot only have co-correlated asset classes. You have to have something that is a little, you know, a little different. So you can escape the volatility if you're trading. And so it, it was clear that replicating security and uh, or securities and assets onto the blockchain was going to be a huge thing. And this was sort of in 2016. So we started to think about that. It was a reviving of a project that was tried earlier by, by my neighbor. And then sort of, you know, it evolved very quickly into like a harder problem to solve. We knew exactly that there's a huge amount of difficulty when it comes to regulation and how to structure that right. And not just from a technology perspective, but also from a legal and from a consensus perspective and a governance perspective. So, yeah, this takes us basically into into the early 2017. And then sort of, you know, we worked hard to get that up and and not just up from defining a white paper, mainly actually from talking with real customers, real prospects, getting a sense what they would want to do, what are the problems that they're trying to solve. So we, we, we actually defined that first before actually defining what a product slash white paper slash sales process would look like. So it's a little bit of an unconventional approach maybe because this was way before actually that whole ICO craziness started in, in you know mid of Q2. And it was actually worthwhile to do that before actually coming to market. Yeah, it's good you guys got in earlier when you did because now it's the ICO market is so saturated that it's hard for anyone, even if the projects are, are good ideas, it's hard for any one project to really get people's attention now. That's clear and it costs a huge amount of money or, you know, creative minds to get, get that attention. But at the same time also, I'm very happy that we that we did that approach the way that we did it because actually when, when we actually did the ICO, we had promises to fulfill. And I think we, we had done a good amount of homework before then that allowed us to not, you know, not wait for things to happen. And they, take, they do take time sometimes. And therefore, we could hold the promise that, you know, we were live within three months time with a real live product with a real live business on top of it. And, you know, from here on, it's there's very clear and distinct steps that are taking place in a in a drumbeat fashion. If, if we were to then go, you know, in, in an alternative path, an alternative universe, if we didn't have that and we would take six to 12 months time to deliver some kind of product, that is a vague vacuum that is not healthy. That is a, you know, the crypto markets are not patient enough for that to occur. So I think times are, times are changing where actually sort of delivery on your promises is going to be taken more seriously and we're happy to be sort of equipped for that. Yeah, I guess you're seeing more of a, a maturation of the crypto market where it's becoming closer to the startup market where people expect you to have a product before you even raise money or at least have a product once you're done raising money. Otherwise, you look like a lot of these projects that end up creating nothing and then disappearing with people's money. So, there's kind of a, a higher standard now that people are being held to. Yeah, and, and one, to... on one hand, it's easier, right? I mean, because everyone has this this vision of actually sort of raising funds with not that many string, strings attached. But I think people tend to forget that Actually, it's a, a little more difficult because you actually have way more constituents that you have to sort of hold, you know, hold answers to. And you actually are somewhat of a public, you know, you're somewhat in the public eye in delivering that. And that's a challenge if you actually sort of are not used to that, if you're not actually capable to manage these processes. And, you know, some of the processes we have to still develop ourselves and on the fly because they don't, they, there's not an industry standard that exists on it. I was part of the 
the B token ICO process. So I got to see a lot of this stuff firsthand. And did you have the same thing we did where like you just had like thousands of people breathing down your neck essentially and like some of them were rooting for you. Some of them like would have loved to have seen you like crash and burn and like said horrible things to you and you're like, oh God, <laughs> I got to deliver. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every day like you just get some horrible message in your inbox and you're like, well, just got to brush that one off too. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that's the story of crypto is like this, this pitchiness, you know, in both directions as you describe it, right? The, the ones I loved most, however, was, were those that were, were screaming down in your ear or in your inbox or any other, other channel they would find. And when you actually took the time to give them some answers and you were, you're afraid to what's going to be next. And Suddenly, there's like after five interactions, there's like this one message saying, oh, that's awesome. And you're like, <laughs> you're like what oh, just yeah. happened? What just happened? <laughs> one you second ago, you were threatening my family <laughs> and, yeah. now you're, and now you love me. Like, what's the... <laughs> exactly. And, and I've seen that, I've seen that in, in different ways happen. And I'm not saying that it's so, totally worthwhile to engage with everyone and, and listen to their needs because there's a lot, there's a lot of noise that you can then engage with. But it is sometimes extremely surprising how you know, how some of these individuals actually need to have that pitchy voice in order to think that they need to be heard. But in the end, they're, they're in it for the right cause and for a good cause. And if they find something that's solid, they're actually extremely excited and contributing and, and, and passionate about it. And they might end up being your, your biggest fans because they flipped harder than other people who are maybe just kind of sort of on your side. Right. And so, I would say that I mean, it's hard. And I'm not saying to the least extent that it's an easy task, but at the same time, that aspect of community management and actually understanding how to take the time out of a already busy day. And we talked initially about sort of, you know, like some days are really overwhelming to take the time and engage in that conversation and then find those nuggets and develop them. And, and we've seen, we've seen just like these discoveries sometimes along the way of people that have really, really unique qualities. And if you if you discover that, you basically then you can take that and, and gain a lot from that. I mean, we have we have an extremely active person. I'm not going to mention who that is, but um, on on Telegram that was like giving these interesting nuggets into the Telegram group, and and suddenly actually sort of by I DM them and said, you know, I want to learn more about your background, and suddenly that you know person met with me and and turned out to be one of the most stunning international tax lawyers that actually had a lot to say, had a lot to contribute. We actually learned a lot from and actually could put things into action with a capacity that we normally wouldn't have had, right? Oh, wow. What was one little nugget that they gave you that you can share with the audience? This would go too much into the specifics, but this this had to do basically with how to structure the whole legal setup and how to make it such that you know both sides from a tax perspective don't get hurt that much. I mean, we're not giving tax advice, but at the same time, you want to set up these structures so that it doesn't necessarily hurt everyone who's involved just by setting them up wrongly, right? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of... You don't have to tell me how many legal tripwires you have to walk over when doing this process. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that scene from Mission Impossible where you're like dodging all the lasers, you know? That's right. I imagine running ICO is. Yeah, but it's, but it's not just the ICO. I think that's sometimes misperceived. I think the, the fun starts after. I mean, the ICO is its, <laughs> own, it's, it's its own beast and sometimes bear, sometimes sometimes bull to ride. But actually after that, the fun begins because you you have these other things that you have to navigate, you know, how to, how to create something, how to sort of you know, find that creation to manifest itself into the lives of people and, 
and at the same time just to serve continue serving your constituents and the token holders are the constituents yeah the and instead of just a couple investors you have many thousands of investors looking at you with a magnifying glass to make sure you deliver what you said you're going to deliver yeah and some have more time than others some <laughs> yeah. have amazingly a lot of time on their hands <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed, both for good and bad. We've had people who are were following us and like giving rooting us on and had tons of time and, and exactly the opposite as well. People who would create multiple accounts and just to harass us and uh, just have an amazing amount of time. I think ultimately it's like, have you read that book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie? No, I didn't. Well, the important thing from it was that people just want to feel important essentially. Like everyone just wants to feel like they're important somehow. So, I think it just comes down to... By you giving them attention, they feel important. They feel like uh, heard. And then that flip will often happen, like you mentioned, because they're like, oh, I feel heard now. I feel important. I'm, I'm good. Versus when they have something lacking that they don't feel important, that they can be like your biggest critics just because they haven't gotten that sense of importance that maybe other people are getting in their lives elsewhere. I don't know. That's my, that's my little napkin theory but oh i would have so much to say to that but i'm gonna <laughs> refrain from doing so <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's like much more complex uh, and that's like a very simplified thing but anyway yeah. let's let's refrain from talking about that for a while <laughs> <laughs> so maybe tell me about some of the lessons you learned from this whole process like either the ico or the, or the product building or any anything that could be useful for the audience to learn about yeah so I think we d- we did a couple things fairly unconventional, and it was I mean we were heavily debating that ourselves whether we d- were doing the right things along the way. So you know to mention a few is just okay. We started off by by putting a, together a white paper at the time that was unusually going into the area of like how to do go to market, how to look at you know the target audiences that you would be looking at to expose this first to. To not actually have it too too much geared towards technology, but actually really try to talk about more the the structure of how you're building on top of the protocol and what you're trying to achieve there. And I, I remember, and this was I think the first time we exposed this was probably beginning of or you know, end of Q1 of 2017. Uh, we got a lot of flack for just saying, you know, this is this is not the proper white paper. This is not the way that you write it, and this is not what we're looking for. And we respected that, but at the same time, we said, but this is what we feel people should know that actually come along for the ride in this endeavor. And What didn't you include that people were criticizing you for? No, I think it was less what we didn't include. It was less what we did include. Oh. So, we took, we took more of the time of actually sort of spelling that out. And it may have been more like a traditional like business plan more than actually sort of a technology white paper. And I think at the time, it was kind of unusual. So, that, that was like one, one of the areas where we had this, this whole commenting period where people were, you know, able to sort of help us, help us write parts of the sections or comment on it. And we did that in Google Docs. And it was, that was an interesting community experience as well. So, you community source parts of your white paper. That's, yeah, that's something I haven't really heard many people do. Yeah, no, we wanted to get, get a sense of what people thought of it and like, is it something they want? Is it something they desire? Is it something they have input on? And we learned a lot in a positive way, but also there was a lot of other dimensions that, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily go down again, but, and then we defined the sales process and we did that in a way. So the core to our, our like system is that we're claiming that we're building security tokens. And again, we're the first one's life to market, which is astounding. And at the same time, 
we knew all along that sort of being regulatory compliant was actually a key thing. So with that in mind, you know, we always said we, we cannot run a sales process that might be violating some of those principles. And so we put in place a couple of things that also we got a lot of heat for, which was like, you give me an example, we, we only took accredited investors from US persons. So yeah, we did the same thing. Yeah. And only those that had that accreditation were able to invest. And that was something that they at the time, again, they weren't used to it. Uh, second thing was we actually sort of one of the one of the key product items that we had built before was actually sort of a governance system. So we actually put in place a governance that allowed allowed the purchasers of the swarm tokens to actually the, the day after the sale was closed to define what kind of liquidity release they wanted on the token. Because we said, you know, we don't want a pump and dump. We don't want to give the functionality that allows a pump and dump to happen, which means then they decided that, you know, in four increments of 25% each in 84 days, one fourth of the token each should be actually become liquid. And that way we had... So you actually created a voting process for this from the token investors? How how did that look like? How did that work? Well, it's a a liquid democracy blockchain-based voting mechanism that directly was connected with the token. So whatever came out of that process was... There was no manual interaction between then the, the results and putting that into motion with the token. But it was directly a configuration in the smart contract that allowed that to be executed. That's um, super so, cool. we, so we right out of the gate actually put the fate of what we're doing into the community's hands, if you call it that way. And that way, we incentivize people to see this as a more active thing and not just something to lean back and just be passively observing, Right. But it's an experiment too. It worked really well, but at the same time... Who knows how it could have gone. <laughs> yeah, but, but it made us sleep a lot better because in the end, we all together as token holders decided what we thought was best uh, to do. And it, and it certainly kept some, you know, some bigger crypto investors away because they, they were used to a different liquidity. But in the end, I think you know, history is already showing that actually we were right in doing so. There's a number of those things that actually we did a little unconventionally and which at the time we were we were struggling with. I mean, this was not an easy decision to make in different aspects. And so you sometimes just have to develop your own opinion and then, you know, hopefully that goes right. It doesn't always go right. Because that's the nature of being a, an entrepreneur. You have to throw darts into the dark sometimes and yeah. use your best judgment and that's it. That's right. That's right. Have other have other companies done the same thing? I, I'm not really familiar with this uh, governance right after ICO. No, I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, there there are obviously other companies that have like governance or community governance of of their foundation, but um, but we we meant that as a design principle. So our governance now, and when we're actually in the second evolution of that that governance, is is applying to the foundation governance and what it does there. And at the same time, actually, this gets, the same governance is going to govern the token holders of the security tokens are going to govern the security tokens. So that allows us, again, as Swarm Fund, as an organization, to not, not be in the middle of the token holders and whatever the asset is underneath. But they do that by themselves on their own merits with their own decisions. And there's no middleman in that, right? It allows a, a huge amount. So that's the other learning mod, possibly. I believe that a lot of models had been built very statically. So you have to front load all the decisions to that one des- defining moment of creating that token. 
and which is can be very problematic because you can't predict the future yeah and you don't know what things you have to change to actually meet new things along the way so if you build in the flexibility to make decisions and then possibly to amend or change or adopt um, things along the way with the token behavior or even with policies around that or with you know governance it's actually sort of better because you can you're you remain actionable and you're not a static right I feel like that guy who was uh, messaging you right now. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not screaming at me, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I realized we didn't actually go over the whole overarching concept of how of how Swarm Fund works. So, just for the people who aren't familiar with it, could you just do a, like a, a quick walkthrough of, uh, I want to participate in Swarm Fund. How do I do it? How does it work? What happens? So let's start actually with the with the investor coming in, and we built this for two distinct groups of investors. One is actually sort of the crypto investor that, you know, we built it basically for ourselves, like I described. Like we wanted we wanted something like this to exist, and so, you know, someone comes in with a high degree of volatility, and you want to you want to invest into other assets from crypto to crypto, but in other assets that have more stability, right? But still have returns. The other group actually we we discovered along the way is actually sort of family offices from abroad that basically have a hard time to in the normal financial markets to get into so-called alternative asset classes and alternative asset classes are private equity or you know real estate or you know infrastructure so opportunities that are not publicly listed and so they normally have to go through like a different a set of like six or more layers to of banks and advisors to get into those opportunities. And it's a very difficult process because you have to commit a huge amount of capital for owning one of those positions. And then you're stuck for five to 10 years. So we knew all along that for both groups, we can build something that is more flexible, that is more direct and that has significant advantages compared to what the financial markets offer today, right? So our process works as follows. Both come to Swarm Fund. There is an AML, KYC, and sometimes accreditation process that needs to take place to qualify an investor. We were completely overwhelmed, actually, sort of in the last couple of weeks. We, we went live end of, end of January, and actually within, within five weeks' time, we have now... Uh, roughly 13,000 investors qualified on the platform, which was actually more than we expected in that short period of time oh, well. to happen. And every one of those is uh, accredited AML, KYC. Correct. And then sort of what happens after that, so you, you actually then are qualified and then you can load your wallet with either crypto or fiat. And you can take that wallet and go basically shopping on the opportunities that are listed on the platform. And so let's talk about the listings there. So the listings are... We focused on the segment initially of of funds, and this was purely for go-to-market reasons, right? Because funds have a track record, funds have a manager, a person on those, and you basically can look at the past and you can say whether there's something you want to do going forward. So it's different than a category of, I don't know, startups or one-off companies, right? And so in the end, what we do is we, we tokenize LP positions in funds initially, what is LP positions? Yeah, so a fund is structured normally by GPs, which is general partners, which are mostly the managers, and then LPs, which are the limited partners, which are basically the people that give the capital for the GPs to manage, right? So if you want to buy into a normal fund out there today, a normal private equity fund, you typically have, I don't know, 500,000 to sometimes 10 million in minimum capital that you have to put up and that you have to commit five to 10 years to 
before you can enter that fund. That's a long period of time and a lot of capital. So the normal person, the normal individual retail investor has no chance whatsoever to participate in these returns because that is too much money. So what we do is we come in, we become one LP in one of those funds, and that LP is owned by a legal entity. And that legal entity happens to be then tokenized. So when someone as an investor comes in, they can buy a security token that represents this underlying asset that is held by this entity. So you could actually come in today and you can go on the platform and you can you can buy into a fund that does pre-IPO tech stock, which actually buys Uber and Airbnb and other assets in their fund strategy. strategy. So you actually can go in, you can buy Airbnb. And then you can also in future, you can actually trade that out. So basically you, you can bring a liquidity to an asset class that normally doesn't exist while making it accessible to a broad swath of investors, which is a fundamental problem in today's investment markets. Right. Because you have only a certain high class of people that is a very limited class of people that's able to access these and, and then trade them. Right. And, and the typical saying is that actually sort of private equity makes makes an asset public once they have had enough return from it. <laughs> so you basically, <laughs> they squeeze it the, hard, the hardest they can and then basically... You know, they could bring it to the public markets when they want to de-invest. All right, we, we can IPI now. We, we got our money out of it. <laughs> exactly. So here we're solving really to make that $5 investor from Kenya be able to access the same returns that a $5 million investor from Wall Street normally has access to. And that is a huge inclusion of a broad swath of people that have not been included in this ecosystem. And funny enough, it actually opens up more capital in a different way for those underlying funds that is interesting to them. So we actually sort of, to complete the story, we have two funds on the platform live today, but we have growing by the day, we have 35 funds actually in the pipeline and that are going to be sort of listed soon. And that is amazing to see actually how many people recognize that this is a valid model that they want to participate in from that side also from the investment fund side, right? That's really cool, actually. I like... I was hearing a talk by this guy on this same subject a week ago. So it's interesting that we're now talking about this same exact problem again. And lo and behold, here you guys have a solution to it already. So yeah, I guess not everyone is, uh, has caught on, on your bandwagon yet, but it sounds like something that is going to start exploding. I mean, 35 funds, it's a lot. Yeah. And it's, and so we see, we see some interesting like topical ranges there. So, I mean, cer- certainly sort of real estate is a big topic. Um, so we have, you know, a range of different real estate funds, but there's actually sort of private equity and sort of tech there. They're funny enough. There's actually crypto funds as well. So some of the largest crypto funds in the space that have multiple billions of dollars in their funds, they structured it in the same way that I just described it. You know, they have minimum buy-ins, et cetera, et cetera. So the normal person cannot buy into like a composite of wealth creation that is managed professionally by a group of people. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> it is totally ironic. And so with us tokenizing those, we again make it accessible. And we still have someone that on the other end professionally takes care of it. And then there's a group of impact funds, which is, that is actually something really cool where suddenly you can see that some impact projects, they come to life because they finally have a way to not just appeal to the local financing community, but bring it on a global scale and actually make that directly investable. So Normally in impact investing, there's so many layers again of, you know, of nonprofits that they have to go through that 
that eats away on that dollar that is being donated. And here you have a way to put it directly into the stuff that you care about and possibly have a higher degree of transparency of what it actually does, what your dollar actually actually affects. Hmm. It's really interesting. You guys are even impact investing. So in the end, when, when you again think of the family office, when you have $100 million in your family office, you're not going to spend more than $10 million actually in, into this asset class because you normally have to spend like this on one or two opportunities. With this future, you can actually sort of put this across, I don't know, 300 opportunities in small increments. And you can actually say, well, I want to I want to have this kind of composite of topics that I sort of invest into. And these are the region that I want to invest into. And then AI can help make that capital allocation in a highly efficient way. But it actually allows me to do that in a much leaner way. And I can choose the topics that I care about. If I fall out of love with one topic, I can actually switch out of it. So the flexibility is huge um, that suddenly someone of that profile gets. So one thing you mentioned before, which I thought was interesting is, um, so someone with $5 somewhere who wants to invest can invest, but you mentioned people will have to be accredited investors. So isn't that you have to be uh, uh, making at least 200K a year for two years or have a million dollar in assets? Yeah, you're touching on a very, you know, United States specific problem. That only in the United States and everywhere else, you guys aren't worrying about that. Well, everywhere is a big word, right? But, <laughs> but yeah, okay. yes. Canada, but, US, uh, China, Hong Kong. <laughs> and generally, yes, you can generalize that. You can say basically that these rules in America exist and, you know, we're not going to bend the law to, to make that work differently. That is That are the rules and we're holding to that legally, that regulatory compliance. But still, that doesn't mean that the investor from Kenya, if, if that country is actually able and is not on some specific blacklist, right, to able to invest into American assets, for example, you know, and there is locally no regulatory requirement to actually accredit someone because they have a different position on what uh, individuals should be doing, that should be efficient to be done. I mean, it works both ways, right? The investor gets actually sort of some part in a return that normally that person would not have access to. But in the same time, the investment opportunity locally in the United States would actually get access in a much leaner fashion to a wider, broader and more global group of people outside of the United States. So there's actually financial direct investment coming to a country like America in this case. Right. You're breaking down a lot of these barriers to having to stay in a fund for 5, 10 years and yep. buy a spot as an LP. No, it's, it's a really fascinating model you guys have put together. One of the questions that's that was bugging me as you're talking, um, so how do you guys generate revenue as you're doing this? This is the, the fun question that I always look forward to in conversations, especially when, when I talk to funds or to people in the financial industry, because the simple answer is we're a nonprofit organization. We're not incentivized as an organization to make fees or profits. Quite to the contrary, we're incentivized to, to stay away from that. We're, we're not introducing ourselves to take some kind of cut out of the equation. And so it comes, comes to sort of the, the token economy. I think that's something like in the broad realm of ICOs, I think sometimes people underthink token economies. And I think it's super, super critical to think that way before you actually write a white paper because some, so much revolves around it. Why are you tokenizing something? Why is there a reason to tokenize something? Why do you need the blockchain to do these things, right? So in our case, we, we separated the securities and the security token aspects and the security interests from the, the non-security aspect, the utilities. And in our case, it's very simple where the swarm token 
is a ERC-20 utility token, and it repre- represents all the different fees that go and flow through the system. So if an investor comes or if a fund comes to the platform and they want to operate a fund on the infrastructure, and the infrastructure is consisting of you know, validation nodes, it's consisting of legal entities, it's consisting of, of auditors, it's consisting of all sorts of different constituents that are outside of the swarm organization that are incentivized to participate in this in this model, then they have to pay a percentage of annual assets under management into that network, but it doesn't necessarily go to the form foundation, right? The same actually on the other side, when an investor comes, there is a there's a capital placement fee that is also not unusual in the in the normal normal investment markets where a percentage of the investment actually gets put or gets taken away and then put as gas into the network of people that made all that possible. So what we're doing in the end with this is we've created sort of a, an incentive model that allows people to, to do what they do normally in today's financial markets, but do that in a much more flexible fashion. And we are incentivizing everyone to deliver more for less. So it's a, it becomes a whole infrastructure of like, like fragmented part. So we blowing up the value chain and every fragment is still delivered by high quality service providers that are incentivized to deliver more for less. And that is a virtuous cycle because you're getting rid of middlemen and you're still using the high degree of quality that actually exists and has been evolving over decades to deliver what they deliver today. Right. You're essentially breaking down these very high cost barriers for something that helps people grow their wealth and, and invest in an intelligent way, these access to these funds and doing so in a way that wasn't ever really possible before something like what you guys created came along. Yeah, I, w- I totally 100% agree with that. That's And I would have thought that that vision is harder to achieve than it seems right now because this willingness of investors and the willingness of actually financial opportunities is astoundingly high. And it's, I think it results from the fact that actually this, this middle tier, the middlemen in the middle of some whatever kind actually have overdone it. And people just are, are turning away from some of these opportunities because of those middlemen. So if you relieve them from the middlemen to necessarily exist, there's a high degree of attractiveness to, to engage again. Right. Yeah, you opened up an entirely new market for these things, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, another technical question just out of my own curiosity from having been on the inside of, of an ICO as well. You mentioned that, you know, someone from Kenya can can put in $5, but doesn't KYC cost like 100 to $200 per person? Like, how are you guys affording that for the people who aren't really putting in a lot of money? How, where does that cost? How does it like reduced or, or made up for? Yeah. It's, so, just saying again, some of the parts that, that I was sort of referring to is like, when you look at the capital placement fee, you know, that's, you know, between one and one and a half percent right now, but that's going to be floating of the initial investment that goes in. That obviously for bigger ticket investors is obviously too high of a fee to justify any costs that go into it. So they can actually sort of that pool of capital for bigger ticket investors can actually cross subsidize smaller ticket investors. So you're looking at an entire, no, sort of, somewhat of a solidarity model actually on on the investor side to make make good of that. But it's a it's a great observation, and that's something that we we definitely care about that we want to institutionalize is that, you know, the pool of people coming together to do something, they should do that all together, and it shouldn't be prohibitive because something stands in the way. 
So other investors are the bigger investors are essentially supporting the smaller ones. Yes. Hmm. God, that is very Burning Man of you. <laughs> yeah, but it benefits both, right? I mean, yeah. First of all, yeah, I, I love the aspect of actually inclusiveness in that as well as I. I also love the aspect. But that, it's also very practical. But the practical, exactly. The practicality is if you if you can open up to broader swaths of investors and like smaller investors even the liquidity and the trading liquidity and whatever whatever happens with the assets becomes much more fragmented and and therefore it's it's easier to market either to take to market right so only having bigger investors is not a good thing necessarily in terms of how you want to actually um, act with the with marketability of an asset right you create a stronger asset when it the liquidity is is higher and create a more a less volatile thing I want to move a little bit away from Swarm Fund uh, and just focus more on like uh, where you see the crypto space going over the next couple of years. Like what are some of the things that you think are exciting besides Swarm Fund? Because I know you guys have a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline, but I kind of want to know like your view on the crypto space as a whole. Someone just said a couple of days ago, someone said, you know, 2018 is when the empire strikes back. So this was referring to the fact that the regulators are waking up and sort of the you know the governments are seeing this more seriously and you know the fear of that taking over the ecosystem and you know shutting something down that actually is very very working very by very different rules and regulations than than what they would like. I think let's recognize number one that's that's not really possible. Yeah, in part it will happen, but in part it actually is just you know it's not not possible to to escape that. And secondly, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing to find a bridge by which you can tie in existing institutions. Like like let's get the swarm model is the same is a good, good example of that, right? We we recognize the fact that there is people that do things really really well out there. You're just tying them together in a in a more fluid and a more you know more direct way. And so I think blockchain has been around for 10 years now, and I think it's the time has come to actually have it manifest itself into the real life and real users in a broader fashion than just the speculative element of cryptocurrencies. And so I don't fear that as much as I fear that it actually is going to come with all sorts of challenges, of cultural challenges, of how to get the communities involved, etc. I think what is not going to go away is like, let's, let's talk briefly about what the exciting parts of... Um, of an ICO are. It's not the fact that you you have like a global community of people chipping in, you know, ether into your wallet and then you just do whatever you like with it. But the exciting things are that you're actually sort of involving people that help you build whatever you want to build. You get them involved and you get them incentivized to do certain things and you have this token that you can use to to create these incentives. But secondly, and and that's maybe sort of my personal opinion is if I if I look at the past of how you were able to create companies in Silicon Valley, for example, it was always constrained by either the locality of capital or the locality of talent. And both those aspects don't exist in the ICO world. Actually, in fact, I would even argue that if you look at talent from abroad that has really, really high degree of qualifications, they have some kind of, you know, some kind of special ability of actually developing something or have mathematical, you know, abilities that are way beyond possibly some education that is here in the United States. You know, normally they would be disenfranchised by not being able to participate in that ecosystem because they just happened not to live in Silicon Valley. They couldn't afford to, or they didn't have a way to get here, and therefore they were shut out of the value creation of, of what the technology space had for them. Here, 
it doesn't really matter, actually, if you're a talented developer from Ukraine and you have a sound and transparent model that actually you can bring forth and pitch to the community and the community believes that should exist, you have a reason to exist. You have a reason to actually sort of, you know, get funds and get people excited around it. I mean, if you take a step back and look at that fact alone, it's broadening the talent pool of talent and rewarding them on a global scale. That is something that actually sort of hadn't existed before. It was always still tied to the locality of talent and the locality of capital coming together. And in this case, it isn't. And so that is something that I think people are not realizing yet that's much, but but it's it's coming that that's something where new parts of the global society can actually contribute and actually help unearth opportunity and unearth efficiency gains and help solve some bigger problems. And they do it with a slightly different perspective than, you know, maybe the fishbowl of Silicon Silicon Valley would. Right, because they get to see unique challenges that are in their environment that don't exist in Silicon Valley. Right. And get to look uh, with unique vantage point, unique educational system that you might not have here in the United States. Like, uh, Yeah, or you can, you can actually patch together people that actually are not even in the same place. You know, you suddenly have multiple perspectives and you have different angles of what is exciting to them. And maybe there's problems that exist that we would never think of out of our own personal experience, but other people globally share. By all means, they should be empowered to actually execute on them. Agreed. Yeah, I'm amazed always by uh, the number of mind-bogglingly clever projects that are coming out of places that I... I've never heard of these these big projects coming out of before. And, and and you're right, I've seen projects become global that are based somewhere out of, a, you know, Eastern Europe or, or you know, maybe some other place that I, I usually wouldn't see like these kind of global presence. And obviously, they're, they're global companies in these, in these countries, but it's not necessarily in our consciousness here in the United States. But because of the platform and because of the way that money is raised in these, I get to hear about them. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to touch on that I didn't ask already that you want to share with the audience? Yeah. And then everyone out there, just reach out. I mean, we want feedback. We want uh, personal feedback, but also we want, as Form Fund, we want contributions and criticism and everything. So we have all those channels that are usual. We have www.swarm.fund as a website, but also the Telegram channel on referenced on there. We have Twitter. And then we we're obviously keen and interested to actually sort of see how this whole governance experiment actually works out fine. So if, if anyone out there is interested to participate, you know, buy some small, small amount of Smorton tokens, bigger amount of Smorton tokens and participate in the conversation, because that's astonishing if you think of actually direct, like direct democracy in a way to govern something and own part of that as a community. That can actually, I mean, we, we're building this such that Swarm Fund and Philip as a person, we don't have to exist going forward for this to actually be, be existent. So I think the more we learn from these processes, the better we actually understand how these networks actually should be created going forward. We heard it from the man himself. If you want to learn more about Swarm Fund, go to swarm.fund, very easy website. Thank you so much for your time, Philip. I know you're exhausted, so I'll let you get off and uh, <laughs> go eat your dinner finally. Hopefully, it's not too cold. No, it's, I mean, it's colder than in Puerto Rico, that's for sure, but it's not cold at all. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. The podcast is hosted by Rob Peterson, Alain Leon, Deng Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. 
Website created by Coco Lu and Kevin Van, and show notes and articles made by our editor-in-chief, Deng Du. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. We're a new show, so the reviews really help us out a ton. You can also find us on Twitter at Keep It Cryptic. That's K-E-E-P-I-T-C-R-Y-P-T-I-C. You can also find us on Medium or Steam It at A Bit Cryptic, like the show name. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep it cryptic.